Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. If you work in healthcare IT, you must have heard the name EPIC. EPIC is a renowned EHR provider that covers around a third of the US healthcare market. In 2019, EPIC launched COSMOS, a special program for data mining of patient data gathered in the EPIC systems. Today, EPIC COSMOS, which was built to enable easier clinical research for contributing EPIC customers, contains over 178 million patient records from over 6.5 billion encounters in the US, representing patients in all 50 U.S. states. In this episode's discussion, I spoke with Phil Lindemann, VP of Business Intelligence at EPIC, and EPIC's clinical informaticist Dave Little, who talked about the growth of data in EPIC Cosmos. We discussed collaboration with external healthcare IT and app providers that can join EPIC's app or cart ecosystem, Dave and Phil also talked about needed improvements for easier collaboration with healthcare IT vendors and innovators outside Epic, and how they hope EHRs will evolve with novel technologies such as ChatGPT and AI and more. This discussion is part of a broader series of talks about healthcare data management in the US. I will publish an in-depth summary in our monthly newsletter, so make sure to subscribe to it by going to fodh.substack.com. The January edition offers an overview into natural language processing development in healthcare and the potential of chat GPT in healthcare, so make sure to check it out at fodh.substack.com. The link is also in the show notes. We've got three more episodes to go in the broader series about healthcare data management in the US. The next one with Samir Uni, Business Development Lead for Healthcare at Palantir Foundry. Palantir Foundry is the world's leading platform for making decisions from data. Uh, So what that means is that from the starting point of where that data sits within an organization, we don't, you know, bring external data sources to our customers. We simply enable them to make better use of the data that they have, all the way through to structuring, harmonizing, organizing that data, then to enabling our customers, their employees, their partners to make sense of that data in an operational capacity day-to-day, whether it's on the factory floor or in the research lab, is at the core of what we do. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast to be notified about this next episode automatically. Now let's dive in today's discussion. Dave and Phil, thank you for joining this discussion about epic about the epic cosmos data research kind of environment where clinicians and researchers can do various research and maybe just as a quick warm-up there's probably 
not a person in healthcare that would not be familiar with Epic. You maintain basically one third of the EHR market share in the US. So 250 million patients. And if I'm not mistaken, globally, that number is 300 million. So maybe we can start there. How would you characterize the institutions that you work with? And by that, what kind of differences are you seeing between, for example, the US market and then those in other countries that decide to implement Epic? Yeah. Dave, you want to start and then maybe I can talk about some of the newer types of organizations we're working with? <clears throat> sure. Yeah, I'll talk about the U.S. and maybe you can compare and contrast with the international. We have a variety of organizations that use Epic for their software. We have academic organizations. We have enterprise hospital systems. We have pediatric hospitals as another group that we specifically like to work with. We also have networks of rural The term in the U.S. is FQHC, Federally Qualified Health Centers, which refers to locations in underserved parts of the country that, that we work with. So overall, if you put all of those organizations together in, in a database like Cosmos, we have studied the demographic makeup of our database and found that it is reflective of the U.S. population as a whole. So we spread throughout the country and pick up representative populations across the, across the U.S. Yeah. So I, when I started at Epic, I think we might have had one or two sites that were outside of the U.S. And now we're in, I think, 15 different countries. And some of those was very different, primarily from an administrative standpoint. I think it's how, how care is paid for has a significant influence on some of the workflows. But what we did find is there's a lot of similarities in how the actual care is delivered. That is very repeatable as we go to different countries and work through their different care models. Uh, but it is the administration and how payer, uh, care is paid for that we see a lot of variation. And sometimes that means building a specific module that just works in that country or that region, which is obviously exciting, but, but very challenging. So I'd say that's the biggest thing that we've seen is a difference with the more broad markets that we're going into. And I think a lot of them are much bigger. If you look at Finland, if you look at Denmark, the Netherlands, but something like 50 to 60% of some of those countries are on a, a version of Epic where they're able to interoperate and share information for analytics and research. So you get something that broad, those countries basically almost get their own little mini cosmos in a way when they roll out Epic. So I think that's where we started is groups looking at larger, can we have a large portion of the population? And now we're seeing where we're a hospital system and we'd like to install Epic and we're seeing more and more of that grow. So it's a pretty active set of installs going on right now. I think we've got don't remember the exact number, but several hundred staff in a Bristol office in the UK that is working with that region to roll out various hospitals and trusts there for the NHS. What is the latest number of data that's included in Epic Cosmos? 
And I just want us to clarify that a little bit, because when we're talking about healthcare data, different companies have different amounts of data from different sources. So for example, I recently had an interview with the CEO and co-founder of Komodo Health, which has data from 330 million people in the U.S. So can we clarify the difference between the data in that database and in Epic Cosmos? I can't speak to how they compute that number or how they get there. I can say something that we take a lot of pride in and take a lot of time to develop is the deduplication efforts that occur within Cosmos or occur largely in the larger Epic community. So today there's about 176 million patients in Cosmos. It's usually growing by a few million a month at the current rate that customers are, are onboarding. And of those 176 million, 50 million of them already have their chart being integrated from multiple organizations, meaning multiple organizations that have that patient in their medical records have joined Cosmos. And now those two charts have joined together in Cosmos to create a more longitudinal record. And that's something that really starts in the clinical care world. So if you roll back the clock, uh, very early on, we were part of the group of organizations that really established the rules of the road for interoperability for care. I think there's interoperability, which means I'm receiving medical care right now. I need to be able to pull my chart and move it back and forth. That requires extremely high accuracy in do I have the right patient? So that's where we started. And when we said, okay, now we're going to build a more aggregate data platform that's primarily for research, um, we could have said, our, we're going to lower our standards for how deduplication works. But we instead said, we're going to use the same methodology that we used for that interoperability tool, which we call Care Everywhere. That's the same deduplication algorithm that we're going to use to flow information into Cosmos. So the magic here is what we were able to do is if a patient is considered the same patient in Cosmos for multiple organizations, it means that somewhere in their clinical care, a clinician or other user actually said they're the same patient with the assistance of a deduplication algorithm. We don't use any fuzzy logic or post mapping or guessing on which patient charts to merge together. That is something you can do. We see that as not as accurate as relying on what happened during clinical care. So that's why we have the number we do. And right now, our expectation is about 50% uh, of the patients in Cosmos, when we're fully grown, will have two or more charts. So that's what our estimates are based on all the links that we know exist in the community is that one out of two patients is going to have multiple charts. And how does the data flow in Cosmos? So I mentioned in the beginning that the number that I found is that Epic covers around 250 million people. Uh, and then there's, you mentioned 176 million people in Cosmos. So obviously from the patient perspective, what I'm wondering is how do, does a patient opt in or opt out of having the data used? What are the rules there? What's why the difference in the number? Yeah. So the 250 number is anyone who uses the Epic uh, medical record software in their office or hospital. So that's, that's where that 250 number comes from. The 176 is the organizations that have already gone live on Cosmos. And that's an opt-in program. Organizations that have Epic decide if they want to turn Cosmos on or that's something that they want to pursue for later. So that's why those two numbers are different. 
Mm-hmm. And can patients decide that they want to prevent their data from being used? They can. And I think that's, again, one of the special things about Cosmos is its close tie to the clinical care software being Epic. So when we design Cosmos, there's obviously, at least in the United States, there is HIPAA and there's these privacy standards that are the law. You have to meet those. But we said we want to make sure we're going above and beyond that, especially as Cosmos is enabled internationally and we onboard additional countries. For example, we have Lebanese data in Cosmos now. And the two things that we did are one, patient calls up and says, I don't want to be in Cosmos and their record can be deleted. That's you call your healthcare system, and that's a function that we enable. Number two is a little more broad in scope, but it was also very important, is even within the United States, there's different jurisdictions, there's different state laws, there's county laws that may dictate what type of health information can be shared for research, regardless if it's de-identified or not. So I think that the going assumption is this is de-identified, but if, for example, There are a lot of states that HIV results cannot be transmitted. So those organizations would say, we do not submit HIV results for our patients to Cosmos. So every organization basically has the keys that they can carve out certain populations of patients that they consider high risk or not within the rules of the road, or maybe they have business arrangements with other uh, hospitals and things like that. So we've given them the flexibility that they can go in and choose what they want to do above and beyond HIPAA. And then the patient always is empowered to decide what they want to do. Um, Can you explain a little bit more about how do you find that the data that you're getting is from the same patient? If, for example, the patients travel between providers, change plans, and are basically in different systems. So how do you merge that data? And also in this context, given that the data is anonymized, how do you see the debate that basically you can't really anonymize data because you can always reverse that process of anonymization? Yeah, so let's take that one second, how the debate about anonymization. Uh, The first one is we as a Cosmos team do no mapping and matching and no deduplication because it's all done within clinical care. So a patient who shows up at another health system, their record is exchanged from other health systems that they visited, and they are clinically matched to be, that is the same patient. So that is our interoperability engine that just exists within the Epic community. That, and that works whether you're at an Epic hospital or a non-Epic hospital. So if I show up at a hospital, let's say they have Epic, They can pull my record even if I'm not normally seen at an Epic facility, as long as that other facility is using interoperability standards. So I'd be able to pull my record in. It would be matched in a clinical care setting. So what that means is there's fully identifiable information, right? Because it's for clinical care. They know everything about me that could be used for matching. So it has a very, very high uh, rate of accuracy for matching in that scenario. So once we've established that patient record is the same between organizations, that's all Cosmos needs. Cosmos just knows that's the same patient because it has a unique identifier. And that's, of course, hashed and anonymized further. But the point is they know that ID is the same. And the beauty, if we wanted to get a little bit technical, is that ID has nothing to do with the patient. It is not derived from their name. It is not derived from their birth date or anything like that. It is truly a unique random number 
that if you got that number, there is nothing you could do with it. So that's a special sauce of how we're doing this is making sure that you could never decode that ID and say, oh, I know the name and date of birth of this patient, which that is a methodology from a privacy preserving record linkage strategy that I think we all should caution as a community that someday standard computing techniques are going to be able to just break that number apart and reveal what those identifiers were that built it. So to your question about is anything truly ever anonymized, there are two strategies that we took with that. One is obviously technical. So we do things like if you're doing a query and you get fewer than 10 results. So I've the, the classic example I use is I'm trying to find my grandparents in northern Wisconsin, where we are here in, in the U.S. And there's probably only a few people that match that location and that rough age range and maybe a problem. So if I try and do that, it's just going to say there's fewer than 10 that match your query. Might be zero, might be nine, but we're not going to tell you. So that's just a software function. The other things we've done are we have gone through an expert determination, which is a third party that says within a certain amount of reason, your data has been de-identified. But the final thing is a set of rules and business practices that involve the user's signed data use agreements. The, are, there are going to be a rules of the road that they follow. And the rules of the road contain things like you can't sell data. Data can't leave the secure enclave at the line level, things like that. So it's a combination of technology and business practices that we work with to ensure that the data can be as secure and unidentified as possible. But it is by no means perfect. And again, like the computer bug thing, I think, you know, that is the reality of this data set is you could always carve out down to something in some scenario, but that's why we have all those additional rules and and there are penalties. If someone were ever to found, be found doing that, their entire organization could be removed from Cosmos. So there's a pretty severe penalty for that. What are the limitations in terms of what kind of research can be done and who is actually eligible to apply for that research? Maybe, you, Dave, you can take that one. In terms of who can apply for the research, any organization that is contributing data to Cosmos has the ability to study the data. We call those organizations subscribers. So if your organization is a Cosmos subscriber, then you can access that data for research purposes. We have a set number of users that are enabled at each organization. No organization has yet hit the ceiling. Of, you have too many people looking at this, but we hope that problem will come along someday as uh, more and more organizations get accustomed to using the, uh, the data. There are really no limits into how you use the data that I'm aware, unless I'm missing something. Obviously, you can't sell it, you can't attempt to de-identify it, you can't publicize it, but in terms of the content of the questions that you want to study, it's limited only by what the data can take you to, and not by any intellectual agreement. Phil, am I, am I correct about that, or is there... More, more, more nuanced than that, probably. Yeah, the language that we outlined is the research that you're doing has to be producing generalizable medical knowledge. So it, as long as it, so it's, is it fitting the spirit of that? That's what the rules of the road and the charter do. So for example, you can't compare hospital A and hospital B and say that one has worse quality. That's not allowed. That's not what we're doing with this, but it's 
generalizable knowledge is being produced, which means it should be in the public domain. It should be accessible to a large group of people, not just a single individual that can make medical decisions and learnings from it. And what kind of studies did you perhaps find most surprising or just insightful? Yeah, I can, I can start off on that. I will first start by saying that EPIC posts our results of our research to a website called epicresearch.org. And it's a public, publicly accessible website. It does not require a membership or a subscription fee or even an EPIC affiliation of any sort. Anybody can go to epicresearch.org and see examples of research findings that have been produced here internally at EPIC or in collaboration with our clients and our subscribers. I'll give you one example that I was recently involved in, which was a study of fentanyl testing in emergency departments around the United States. As we know, there's an opioid crisis that's around the world. When people come to the emergency department with an overdose, testing is performed. But we had a researcher in the state of Maryland, at the University of Maryland, out on the, out on the East Coast, who became aware that fentanyl was not being tested in the standard emergency room protocols. And he studied that at a couple of hospitals that he was connected to and wanted to see if that trend was true across the country rather than just in his small small sample size. So he brought that idea to Epic and we collaborated with him on this research using the Cosmos database. And indeed we found that Patients who come to the emergency department with an overdose get tested for fentanyl specifically only about 5% of the time. And that was a pretty eye-opening trend. And we have taken steps in EPIC to not only put that out on our website and let folks know that this is happening, but also update some things in our own software that will encourage users to, uh, to test for the fentanyl more frequently as well as the work that the that the researchers from Maryland have done to to propagate and uh, publicize those findings. We mentioned that basically those are healthcare providers that contribute the data can also do the research. What about external vendors? Because having data is one thing, but having the right tools and the right knowledge to analyze and to figure out what you actually are looking for or trying to get out of the data with data science is another thing altogether. So what's the relation between that? So external vendors and the cosmos. External vendors that are basically connected to your customers. Part of the philosophy of building cosmos was around trust. And in order to allow all of these healthcare organizations to know that there could be a central trusted place where their data is going to reside, they had to have a reassurance of how it was going to be used. And the rules of the road as they stand now are the hands-on keyboard. The people that analyze the data have to be from that community of, of epic researchers, which does include some of the, the largest, most prestigious academics 
in the world that are going to have the, their ability to have their research groups deal with it. Uh, but we did know there's probably going to be a broader circle of folks who are going to have questions and things like that. So the external groups can engage with those researchers at the EPIC sites to examine questions and things like that. And certainly aggregate data can be taken out, but the line level hands-on keyboard that is reserved for organizations that, that participate in Cosmos, which again, large portion of them are research institutions. Uh, and then what we've done being a, a more on the technology side of the Cosmos equation, we have built a data science enclave that has, uh, depending on what side of the fence you're on, it has our studio, it has books with a series of Python libraries, or just good old SQL and Excel, if that's something that you're interested in. We've essentially given them a safe space that has all of the Cosmos data and then all of their favorite research tools that they can essentially go after that and start running their tests. And I guess the reason why I ask that is because obviously many developers, many innovators want to tap into the Epic EHRs or any other EHRs for that matter, in order to either make the physician work easier or just because no healthcare vendor or IT vendor can really cover everything. There's always going to be innovators that are going to have new ideas about how various healthcare or medical issues could be addressed with the help of technologies. And sometimes just innovators would complain it's not a secret that it's a, it's very difficult to build things on top of epics with the integrations and everything so i'm kind of wondering what's your view on the way that the whole healthcare it landscape um, is developing and how do you see the collaborations with external providers of uh, software solutions yeah i think how our customers choose to share their data is definitely something that they have a lot of optionality around. And there are a lot of groups that just from a pure data sharing participate in many different different data sharing arrangements. Some of them are profitable. Some of them are for care. Some of them are to build predictive models. So I think the autonomy lies with the community that they can choose to do that. This particular iteration of it, Cosmos, has those, you know, those access restrictions that we talked about. That said, from an innovation standpoint, you might be familiar with some of the integrations we have with the vendor community. So there's hundreds of applications that have connected and built on top of the Epic ecosystem. There's billions of API calls that happen back and forth between Epic with the different things that innovators have built an app or they've built a content that can be run natively within Epic or jump out to another window or things like that. So it's definitely something that we endorse and encourage to be standards-based. So whether that be a fire or USCDI export of information, these are all things that I think we've always been at the forefront of making sure that uh, those APIs and things are available so that you can build apps. It is hard. I think that's the thing is it is hard to develop within healthcare. It is a complex system that has a lot of things that you need to learn and be able to embed yourself within Departments so like at Epic, one of the most important things that our R&D team is required to do every year is go on immersions where you follow around doctors like Dave and you get to feel their pain. You get to see if the thing you made doesn't work. And, and, and I think that's a, a really humbling experience that I would encourage our entire industry 
to spend time every year and go follow people around and feel the pain. And I think we'll all be building better products when we do those types of things. If you go to a more general question, when EHRs were first implemented in the U.S., funding was available, so the development happened relatively fast and not all things were perhaps predicted about what's going to happen. Data standards weren't defined as well as they are today and consequently various challenges emerged like from vendor lock-in because of the proprietary standards of different healthcare providers and FIRE is kind of uh, solving that to an extent with the exchange of data and there's new approaches in, into how to address those issues. Additionally, initially, the EHR systems were built for billing purposes and weren't necessarily friendly to the clinical workflows. So just from that perspective, I'm wondering, Phil, when, how, what was the development of the data analytics mindset? in Epic. How did that develop in terms of what was analyzed first and how did the whole thinking go from that further on with the whole development of the EHR landscape? Actually, maybe Dave can answer. I think we want to push back on that these are billing systems. I, yeah. No, I'm not saying that these are billing systems, but in the initial stages, and I'm talking about 15 years ago when you know, the whole EHR development started that the primary purpose was often made for billing, which left aside the whole uh, UX discussions and considerations that are much more prevalent today. And that's just a natural evolution of the EHR that happened. And it's not specifically tied necessarily to to Epic. It's just how the whole industry has been developing. It's uh, many of the EHR systems that you, if you look at them today in terms of the design, still look very old compared to many novel and nicely designed apps because it's just how things are changing. I would say two things about that. The first thing I would say is look at the demographics of the physician population in the U.S. and in around, and around the world. And I transitioned from practicing medicine to becoming an informaticist right as the High Tech Act was going into play. And in fact, Epic wanted to expand its physician team, so they needed extra docs to come in and help with these extra rollouts as more and more organizations were going live. And in that time frame, organizations were converting for the very first time and physicians were converting for the very first time from a paper chart to a computer chart. Brand new experience. A lot of these doctors like me are doctors that really had very limited computer experience to begin with. My generation of docs didn't all grow up with computers in our classroom. We didn't have iPhones and things in our possession. I didn't get my first computer in my home until I had already been in practice for a couple years and paid off some debts and had a little extra money to bring home one of these newfangled computer things. And so to introduce that generation to the electronic health record was a fundamental cultural transition. Billing was a big part of it, or was a part of it, 
because of the second issue I'll bring up, which is the regulatory environment. There, there are so many things that physicians are compelled to do to meet regulations and meet quality standards and meet all of these external expectations that all has to go into the record. In the old days, you wrote a note, you handed it to your billing person, your billing person analyzed your note and sent off your bill, and that all happened in a black box somewhere. And now with the physician being at the computer, big cultural change. I've never used a computer before. I've never had to do billing before. I've never had to keep all this data for external records because it used to be the insurance people would send people in to review your paper charts for you to look at your quality metrics. And now all of that is a new part of this computer world that added layer after layer of complexity to physicians who were not all of that computer cultured to begin with. So yeah, that was a very hard transition. Fast forward 15 years to today, more and more physicians who are coming into practice grew up playing World of Warfare or World of Warcraft or whatever the thing is and with computers in their home and in their classroom and in, in their environment. And they are very accustomed to all of the manual skills that it takes to successfully complete a task using a computer. This is also a generation that sees the whole nature of data very differently. Getting EHRs back 15 years ago were just basically electronic replications of the paper chart. How can we make a thing in the computer that looks like the thing that we had in our paper chart so that we know where to find what we're looking for? But with, with the new generation of these computer savvy, they see the world in 3D much more than they see the world in, in, in a medical charge. The, and the whole nature of the EHR, I think, is going to be transformed radically as that, as that cadre of young physicians and young software developers comes into this world of medicine looking at healthcare and data and systems and things in a very different light based upon their upbringing and their education and their background. Yes, old EHRs, very hard to use. Very, very, and billing got blamed for a lot of it, and there's probably some kernel of truth to that, but I think that's more of a reflection of just the broader transition that docs had to make from the paper world to the electronic world. And now that we've hit the second wave of what we can do with the technology and where we can see the technology going moving forward, I think things will change and part of that will be when old guys like me who are not part of the computer generation move on to the next season of life and are replaced by the younger and more tech savvy and more more data driven, visually oriented thinkers, then yeah, things will get, I guess you could say better, but certainly more, the technology will be more comfortable for the users, both because the technology is changing and because the user base is changing. What are you most excited about in terms of the future development of healthcare IT and EHRs? We hear a lot about burnout from clinicians, but especially in the latest months, there's so much excitement because of Chad GPT about what AI could do in terms of summarizing data, 
using AI as a search engine inside the EHRs for the doctor to find the right information at the right time, potentially just with voice commands. These are not really new ideas, but technology is advancing to the point where they are becoming easier to imagine in real life. Of course, taking into account the limitations posed by potential lack of integrations and just technical drawbacks that are perhaps still making things harder than we would wish them to be. So where do you see the most exciting things in terms of making the user experience better for the clinicians? I'll start and then I'll pass it to Phil. And I promise not to talk for 15 minutes without taking a breath like I did with my last answer. But the thing that really excites me from the medical perspective is the ability of the systems to leverage this data that we have compiled into real-time decisions that we make on the spot. We talk about research and how all this data lives in the background and you can analyze it and think about it and crank out research, but it becomes a whole different experience when I'm a physician and I'm in my clinic and in walks, let's say, a a 50-year-old guy with high blood pressure and diabetes and some kidney problems, and I'm having trouble finding the right combination of drugs to control the blood pressure. But now I've got at my fingertips a database of 160, 170 million patients And the system can quickly narrow that down to 100 patients or 1,000 patients that fit that similar profile, the age, the conditions, the medications, and can look at all of the different treatments that have been provided within that group of patients and see which ones had the best outcomes and make the recommendations to say, hey, drug A was given to a subset of these patients and they did really well. Drug B was given to a different subset, and they did less well. And I can now see that happen before my eyes in real time. I don't have to say, hey, patient, sit tight. Let me go read medical journals for half an hour to figure out what I'm going to do with you. That's going to be at my fingertips. We call that application that we're developing best care for my patient. And Phil's one of our best care experts. And so, yeah, the thing that excites me is... Things like best care, where all of this data that we have compiled can make a meaningful difference to the physician and the patient in real time. And Phil, I'll let you you go further with that. Yeah, I think at the high level, as we've been making automation and medical record systems for since 1979, and I think we're at this point, we've been working on it when you think about the data that's being collected we now have this corpus of data that can inform the workflow and the experience. So before it was more of a passive form and we're documenting and there can be advisories and alerting and the things to guide you through. But now you have this, the other brains of every other clinician that's ever made a medical decision before being synthesized into that. So it gives our developers an entire new world in which to develop where every single screen or UI that they're designing, they can say, how could I enrich this if I had basically all of the other information that was ever entered into the screen before? 
How would I design it differently? How would I be highlighting the right information and floating it up to the top? So certainly ChatGPT is a very, or large language models are a very exciting avenue that we're going to pursue for that. We've also been doing AI for the last almost seven or eight years where we've been embedding that into our system and then working with other community members who build their own algorithms and they're able to deploy those and those are just embedded into workflow. So it's taking our automation and workflow systems that we've been working on for a long time and now just enriching that with data from the entire community. So that's the thing I'm most excited about. That's a bit of a nebulous answer, but building those use cases where the billing office has that corpus of data, the laboratory does, the primary care office there is a lot of opportunity of how we can work with the community, both vendors and our healthcare community to see what we can build. Uh, what's the most difficult thing from your perspective in your product development and the introduction of solutions such as AI? Because different hospitals, different clinical guidelines, uh, different opinions about how care could be delivered can pose challenges when you're trying to build software because you can't build a one-size-fits-all. And you mentioned earlier, you know, how once a year you basically go shadow clinicians just to really walk in their shoes and have the idea of what they're doing and how they're doing it and how you could improve your thinking in product development. But it's not nothing unusual that probably many users would want even more support, even more configuration based on their own specific needs. That's just because different people have different preferences. So how do you look at that as a large company as Epic is? Yeah, I would say the hardest part of some of these advanced projects are they are not turn it on and they will come or build it and they will come. When you're implementing AI, that's really just a small kernel of the work you're going to have to do. The algorithm is actually the simple part at the end of the day. It is the change management. It is working with the staff to say, we're going to change the way that we work and here's why, and here's how you can trust this. And that process is like a mini process improvement project. So at the end of the day, it is human beings and change management and getting everyone to work together. And maybe it wouldn't be as possible or as successful without the technology. But if you just have the technology, it will fail to be adopted. It will fail to have the impact that you want. Hard work required at the end of the day. I think is the reality, as much as we want to say, we can build software that's going to automate this and do this, there's still the change management piece that we have to work with our organizations to make sure that, they, that it sticks, the change we make sticks for the long run. Similar to Phil. At Epic, we consider ourselves the students of our clients, and we are the servants of our clients. We One of the reasons we go on immersion trips is to you know, you know, see how physicians use the system and what ideas they have and what needs they have, and it's the desires and the needs and the requirements of the organizations that use Epic that drive our innovation. We don't pretend like we understand medicine better than providers do. We look to their needs and their workflows and situations on these immersion trips. And immersion trips are not as bad as Phil makes them out to be. It's really, in fact, fascinating to just see how differently so many physicians practice and how 
differently. They deploy the tools to meet their different needs, and the ideas that you come back with are really one of the most fascinating parts of the parts of this job is seeing and hearing what what folks are doing. You mentioned burnout. It's a very complicated environment to practice in. Regulatory staff, billing staff, the electronic health record gets gets a lot of frustration turned toward us be, because of that. And we try, at the very least, to not be part of the problem. But I think one of the things that's going to turn around burnout is the new applications like Best Care that, that really give the providers a sense of the power of the technology that you're using. Not just tapping on the keyboard to generate a bill, but the data that we're capturing is actually changing the nature of the way that we practice medicine through the technology that drives it, the collection the analysis, the AI in the background, the interface that, that pushes it back out to me. That passion and that innovation and that transformation of the nature of medical decision-making is going to be the thing that energizes physicians way more than, hey, look at this little widget we made that now it only takes eight minutes to write a note when it used to take 11 minutes. Yeah, things like that are helpful, and they, we try our best to make the system as efficient as possible. But it's not going to be the the widgets and the tweaks that cure burnout. It's going to be the vision of what the technology can do to transform your reason for being here that's that's going to help us overcome burnout. If we move just for a second from the end users and clinicians also to the other healthcare IT or app providers. So in 2017, Epic created the App Orchard, which is the marketplace to distribute promising software products made by outsiders. Is there anything that you would want to see improved there in terms of the collaboration that you have with these outside uh, providers? For anyone that's perhaps not familiar with this whole ecosystem, I don't know, what would your kind of recommendation, message, or assessment be? Yeah. As far as how to engage the larger vendor community on some of the App Orchard initiatives? Yeah. Or if there's any, I don't know, challenges that you see that still need to be overcome to just make that run more smoothly in terms of the whole, I'm talking very broadly here, just generally. Yeah. I think there's always room to improve. I think one of the things our customers come to us and say, listen, I'm getting five different groups. They all seem like they've got a good pitch and a good idea. Which one should we pick? Which one's going to work best? And I'd say there's probably three things that come down to it. One, are they standards-based? So can they even talk through the standards or is it just a pitch deck? So like, where are they at in their process? So that's number one, standards-based. Number two, really think about their ROI. And it's okay if their ROI is going to be a multi-year ROI. It doesn't have to be in three months we're going to pay this off. So make sure they have a good story. And then the next thing is make sure they're willing to engage with you. Make sure they're willing to come on site and they're willing to get deep into the problem and partner with you. I would say our best collaborations over time with the vendor community have been the one where the customer says, all right, I want to solve this problem. And I think between the two of you, we can do that. 
and walk through that process after the customer has already gone through and said, this is the problem that I'm trying to solve. And these are the groups that I want to help me solve it. And I think sometimes that process happens out of order, which adds to confusion and frustrates some of the organizations that we work with, where they might've felt something was going to do something and they didn't fully understand the scope of it. So I think that's, it's basic, but it is just the general communication up front of what is the problem we're trying to solve? How does this solve it? ROI associated with it? Do we have APIs and standards that can make sure that this is successful? And then we work together as a team to figure out how we're going to do that and get a success story for everybody out of it. Anything to add, Dave? What I would like the world to be like 10 years from now, I would love for that whole process to be easier. I would love for physicians themselves to be able to easily build these apps and not have to bring in an outside computer geek to, to help them meet their information needs. And part of culture and technology, like we talked about with old docs don't know how to use computers as well as young docs do. But on the other hand, young docs don't understand healthcare the way that old docs do, who've been doing it for long enough to really have a sense of, in training, you learn how to take care of a patient. When you have been in practice for a number of years, you learn how to take care of a clinic day with 25 patients or a busy hospital service with 25 patients. There's a big difference between taking care of one patient and taking care of 25 patients, and that's the experience base that helps the, understand the workflows and understand, I need a better way to get this piece of information because I don't have an hour to think about it like I did when I was in training and I only had two patients I was responsible for. So when the day comes that the people who really know the technology have developed a really good understanding of the nature of healthcare practice, I would love to see a world where the app orchard wasn't restricted to people with, you know, engineering backgrounds to contribute to it, but that the docs themselves are sophisticated enough and the tools themselves are user-friendly enough that the doc can put this report together on his lunch break instead of having to hire out an app, an application developer and run him through Phil's list of criteria, which is a great list, by the way. Don't worry, Dave, um, GPT is going to take care of all of this. But, I, but yeah, but I look for the day when it's a lot more do-it-yourself than let's farm this out to a technology provider. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes automatically, and also check out our newsletter at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. And see what we covered in the last month. Stay tuned.